Welcome to Social Fishtensing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. COVID has just really highlighted how food insecure we are in the North. We're in a, in a far worse condition with fall chum that nobody foresaw. We didn't see this coming. COVID-19 is creating this perfect storm where anyone who has a dog team now has nothing left over. Hello, I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. I'm joined by... Emily D'Souza. And I'm Philip Loring. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we are an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. This week, we want to talk about rivers. When we think about the great rivers of North America, there's a few that spring to mind. We might think first of the longest, the Missouri River, or perhaps its cousin, the fabled Mississippi. But could you name the third longest river in North America? If you're drawing a blank, it could be that you aren't thinking quite far enough north. Today, we're talking about the Yukon River, which stretches from its headwaters in Yukon Territory, Canada, over 3,000 kilometers, or just shy of 2,000 miles, all the way to Alaska's far western coast, where it empties into the Bering Sea. Though the Yukon passes through some of the most remote areas of North America, it is an important transportation corridor and lifeline for dozens of small communities all along its course. For thousands of years, the indigenous people of what is now Alaska and Canada have used the river for travel, trade, and perhaps most importantly, for food. That's because beneath the sometimes turbid waters of the Yukon swims a sort of red gold, salmon. Of all the many salmon runs of the world, the salmon of the Yukon River have perhaps one of the most fascinating journeys. These runs, which primarily include Chinook and Chum salmon, are unique in that they travel so far to get to their spawning grounds. Along the way, these fish are a precious source of food for both people and animals and help support a remote and traditional way of life for dozens of communities in the Yukon River watershed. But even on a river as remote as this, the effects of COVID-19 are looming large. This year, the Yukon River Chinook and Chum salmon runs have been smaller than expected, and now many communities are struggling to supplement or replace salmon in their diets and lives. As we've seen in many other places, the impacts of COVID-19 have compounded this already difficult situation. But also, as we've seen, the peoples of the North are resilient and are finding ways to keep salmon on the table. In this episode, we're visiting with people up and down the Yukon River to hear more about the relationship people have with salmon in this far part of the world. Let's start by introducing you to two important voices, Elizabeth MacDonald, who is the executive director of the Yukon Salmon Subcommittee, and Dennis Zimmerman, who is a fish and wildlife consultant in the Yukon. Both Elizabeth and Dennis live and work out of Whitehorse, the largest city in Yukon Territory. We'll hear from Dennis first, who explained a little bit about the types of salmon seen this high up in the Yukon River drainage. The, the prized fish are the, the kings, the Chinook. Um, they, you know, they come earlier, they're bigger, you know, they're fatter, they put up really nicely, they smoke great. It's what people want. And uh, we had 33,000 Chinook come through at Eagle, which is near the, it's at the Canadian border. And the average is 54,000. The bottom end of the treaty is 40, 42,500. So we just, we weren't, weren't even close across the board. Um, and the fall chums come later. 
normally the fall chum has been our we've we've been lucky because it's offset some of the any conservation of chinook that people were making they could take the fall chum because they were always surplus we weren't harvesting our allocation by any stretch we never we never take enough and you know as of today unfortunately for the first time and i'm sure that you're going to hear about this in alaska what's really the double the double kick is the uh, chum fall chum so we're in the exact same we're in a in a far worse condition with fall chum that nobody foresaw we didn't see this coming and so there was a recommendation not to fish for fall chum so we're so that that's how it played out this year the fish ladder in whitehorse which allows managers to count each individual fish that passes only recorded 216 Chinook salmon this year, compared to historical averages of over 1,100 fish. If you're not from the north, it may seem a little unclear as to why a few thousand fish can make that big of a difference. But in the time of COVID, having access to local foods is actually more important than ever. Here's Elizabeth McDonald. People were very worried about food security this year. We're at the end of the line. There aren't a lot of options. It takes two to three days for a truck to get here with food. You know, the, the shelves were empty, as I'm sure in most places, for a lot of food. Um, and then we just don't have the same access to farms that people down south might have. So you can't just go to the local farmer and ask for some tomatoes because you can't really grow tomatoes here. <laughs> so th there were some concerns, right? So they went out and wanted to fish, and justifiably, they went out and fished. There was a harvest. And then partway through the season, towards the end, Salmon subcommittee, uh, the government started realizing they're just, we're just not going to meet this volume statement goal. So salmon subcommittee made a recommendation to First Nation governments that uh, at first just to be more conservative, and then as things became more apparent that that goal wasn't going to be met, actually to stop fishing. Um, and that's always sad. A lot of First Nations in the Yukon haven't fished enough for so long that there's elders who die wanting to taste a salmon, their salmon, and they only some locations only get Chinook. But those same people who want that taste of salmon so bad are saying we shouldn't be fishing them because there just aren't enough. Now, Elizabeth mentioned the Salmon Subcommittee, which is one of many groups on the Canadian side that work in cooperation with Canadian fisheries management agencies and, on the American side, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. But managing fisheries that so many people depend upon can be challenging, even in a small, single-country system the length of the Yukon, the multiple species of salmon that migrate through it, and the fact that people downstream have first access to the fish before they cross the border all make things more challenging. So this year on the Yukon, at the mouth of the river, enough Chinook came in that they should have had enough for harvest on both sides of the border, as well as met spawning statement. Unfortunately, it looks like there was a lot of in-route mortality, so that's when salmon die in the river, and it was likely due to maybe a couple different factors, but we had sustained high water, some, some warm temperatures at the beginning of the season, um, and a disease called, everyone refers to as ick, and it, it may have had an impact as well. Um, so when the salmon actually reached the border, it was well below the spawning escapement goal, which was really sad and scary, because then there's questions about where did all these salmon go? And of course, there's always concerns, well, maybe there was an overharvest somewhere. Maybe there was other factors. Uh, we don't know yet because we don't have harvest numbers until later in the season. In recent times, they've done a little bit better. Spawning statement goals have been met. But looking back further, it was kind of, uh, if you talk to Canadians, they would blame Alaskans for overharvesting. Um, in some years, that's true. In other years, maybe not. And sometimes it was just that the management tools aren't there. 
So this year, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest problems we have or difficulties we have with managing that fishery properly is we just don't have enough tools. Dennis also commented on the transboundary complexity in this fishery. Every single salmon that enters into Yukon, whether it's on the Porcupine River, the Alsek River drainage down southeast Alaska area, kind of transboundary, uh, or the Yukon River has to pass through Alaska. So, you know, we've really got to communicate and have a, a collective vision as it relates to education and outreach for conservation. You know, and, it, and to the credit of Alaska, uh, ADFNG and some of their scientists, I mean, I was on those calls. We have calls and uh, up and down the river, and they were definitely presenting the message of this. We are in a conservation time to Alaskan fishers. So they were really pushing hard to ensure that Alaskan fishers were, you know, understanding that we were not going to meet escapements. So that was a really good thing this year was I felt like ADF and G really stepped up and, and uh, you know, really was, was articulate despite a lot of the politics. And we understand, we have a lot of empathy for those lower river Alaskan communities that are, you know, not associated with roads. They don't, their fl- if their flights don't come in because of COVID, limited flights, they don't get food. It's as simple as that. We get that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a run and we've been conserving for a really long time. It is frustrating to us when there is opportunity in Alaska and then there's none in Canada because we're over conserving and we're just not seeing these returns. In Indigenous communities along the Yukon, where salmon are a critical part of their seasonal food and activities, a lack of fish means that many people won't spend time at their fish camps this year. Both Dennis and Elizabeth explained why losing that time represents a serious loss. You know, fish camp is a very special place for First Nation citizens. And, you know, I've been fortunate over the years to be invited to fish camp, but it's not the kind of place where I can just go and hang out, right? It's their place and it's their time and it's sacred for them. Um, So I can't speak to um, what was happening at fish camps. All I do know is that when the fish weren't materializing, there were very few fish camps. A lot of First Nation fishers don't fish from their home. They will go to their fish camp where their family has been fishing for years. And it's usually a big family activity. So my one friend, he's got his great grandbabies out there with him fishing. And he's got his brother and his sister. You know, it's, it's a family, a large family. So you think about 100 people in this family. That are, and not all of them can go, but they're feeding 100 people. And they got 15 Chinook. So it just, it's, it's not the same food source that it used to be. There's just so much energy and effort put into capturing salmon. And they want to do it because it's their life. It's, it's what they grew up doing. And there's special traditions or special, um, what, what kind of got called First Nation laws. So it's a traditional law. It's a, a way of living. And they need to teach that to their children. And what we're seeing is with these low Chinook runs, low salmon runs, that kids are not having those opportunities to go out and learn those things, which is, it's really hard on people trying to pass on their culture. Dennis also shared a story about what can happen when cultural relationships with salmon and the rivers that they come from are inaccessible. Probably over 10 years ago now, maybe 15 years, the Tezan Clinka Council, they're they're at the headwaters. So they're over 3,000 kilometers, 2,100 miles away, longest freshwater Chinook migration in the world. And they, they they have a really nice run of big Chinook. And 
they started seeing that decline. They call it the canary in the coal mine, right? They saw it a long time ago. We had, you know, 15 years ago, we started seeing the changes in the size structure, big Chinook, um, down to sm much smaller Chinook, fewer Chinook, et cetera. Fish camps empty with cobwebs on them. And they voluntarily restricted. And they're inland Clinket. They're inland Clinket people. So their brothers and sisters in Juneau and the Taku River in BC still had fish. So they would fly in fish into their community. And the story always was that the kids in the school had never been to fish camp. They thought the fish come from planes. So the planes would circle overhead and land on float plane, fresh from, the, from their runs out in their inland Clinket areas in Juneau and in the Taku River in BC, northern BC, and they'd fly those fish right there. And then the community would buy those fish. And so they would get those fish at great expense. The First Nation would pay for them. They would come without heads and guts, which is what the First Nations want. Some of them would take them out to their fish camps, a non-native sockeye, they'd take out to a fish camp in the Yukon River where they would process Chinook just to keep that tradition alive. They'd cut fish out at a fish camp on the Yukon River just because that was what they did, and then they'd smoke it there. Of course, in addition to being a cultural keystone species, salmon are a very important food source in the North. Salmon are highly nutritious, rich in omega-3s and other healthy fatty acids, and they are important to many Indigenous communities' diets. So without enough salmon in freezers this year, people in the Yukon Territory are turning to other sources of local food to supplement their winter diets. Here's Dennis and Elizabeth again. You know, you've also then got pressure that okay well we couldn't get salmon so now we have to get moose and everybody else wants to get moose too so we're just pushing it off it's kind of that whack-a-mole right you knock one down the other one pops up type scenario so we are seeing a lot of pressure on moose right now um, we've seen many first nations uh issue voluntary statements in the paper stating that they would request that the public doesn't hunt in their traditional territory this year a, for COVID reasons, just for mingling and safety and everything else, and B, just to not put pressure on these animals because a lot of their citizens are going to be out there and are being encouraged. You know, I opened the paper the other day and I was flipping through it, our Friday Yukon News, and there's an ad from One First Nation basically saying, you know, we request, we respectfully request you don't hunt here. Ad from another one, we respectfully request you don't hunt here, and then they go to the third one, and it's, it's a kind of contrary, and it says, you're well within your rights to hunt on these areas, you know. And so there's there's kind of these there's there's these this conflict that's brewing um, as a result of increasing pressure on the resources. So there's been a kind of a push, and I think a recognition that uh, for local food sources being a must, and one of those things is our wild food. Um, it's a big part of living in the Yukon, subsistence-wise. People hunt. People go out and get their food. And it's, it's not just one or two people. If you live in the community, just what everybody goes out and gathers berries or hunts, whether it's moose or caribou or elk, whatever they're going for, rabbits. I mean, there, there's lots of opportunities. Um, but what we're finding is there's a lot of fear that comes with that as too, because now people are almost fighting over those natural resources. And we see that, we've seen that with salmon for a long time because the numbers are so low, it can't support all the fisheries. And, and that's a, not just scary, but it makes it hard for managing them properly and making sure that you have enough um, for them to continue being there to support people. And a lot of people are asking the hard questions. Well, what can we do to increase salmon numbers? What can we do 
to, to make it back like it used to be when there was twice as many or 10 times as many of them? Um, and those are really hard questions and it, it's, it's difficult to find um, what will make the biggest difference because usually there's not one problem. Usually there are 10 to 30 to 50 things that have changed that are affecting how productive these salmon populations are. And that makes it hard because what are you going to do? You, you can't control climate change. Um, I mean, not as a Youth on Salmon subcommittee, as a, a world population, there is hope and there are things we can do. But as a single person living in a community in the Yukon, other than reducing your own emissions, there's not much you can do to change the way the world is. So it's, it's kind of scary being that person who depends on salmon, but needing the entire world to change so that you can have your lifestyle, that you can have your wild fish. Let's go downstream now, across the border and into Alaska, where we're going to hear another voice familiar with the Yukon River. I'm Stephanie Quinn-Davidson. I am the director of the Yukon River Intertribal Fish Commission. Uh, we are an organization under Tanana Chiefs Conference based out of Fairbanks. Uh, our fish commission represents over 30 federally recognized tribes on the Yukon River. And our work is focused on advocacy, basically. We, uh, we are advocating for a seat at the management table for tribes on the Yukon River. So the Yukon River drainage, the Alaska portion of it anyway, is larger than the size of Texas. And I think that's a really good comparison for people who aren't familiar with Alaska or with the Yukon River to understand that this is a very, very large region, very remote. Uh, all of our communities are what we say off the road system in Alaska, meaning you can't drive to them. The only way that you can get into our communities is by plane, often very small plane, or uh, by boat if you want to take a very, very long trip around <laughs> the coastline of Alaska up the Yukon River. So really the only way to get into our communities is by plane. And uh, as a result of that, the, there's the only way to get goods into communities often is by plane or by barge, which takes a long time. And so we have communities in our region on the river who don't have grocery stores. And when I say grocery store, <laughs> uh, I think it invokes images of, you know, maybe uh, Costco or Whole Foods or uh, Trader Joe's or whatever, right? We have nothing like that <laughs> on the Yukon River. When I say grocery store, it's like one small room that's maybe the size of a bedroom for most people. And there's a few things on the shelves, right? So our villages, our communities, their grocery stores are literally the lands and the waters that they're living on. 60% of the protein consumed um, by our communities comes from the river, comes from salmon. Um, I just got off a meeting where we were talking about the impact of the low salmon runs this year and how many pounds of protein lost that equates to. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds of protein that are harvested each year from the Yukon River. Now, I spent about 10 years of my life in Alaska, and much of that involved research on the Yukon River. And I can tell you that food security based on salmon is far more desirable than food security that anybody is going to get from the store. 
because they have such a long migration, they have, they're very, very rich in fat. And because they have all those wonderful fatty acids in them, they're, um, they have a very high nutritional content. And so those are sort of the prized fish for everyone along the river are the Yukon King salmon. In fact, their, their oil content is so high that when people are hanging them in their smokehouses, they have to be very careful to not put the fish directly above the, the smoke or directly above the flames because the oil could drip down and, and create a fire and burn up their whole smokehouse. I've heard stories of people walking into their smokehouse and slipping and falling because there's so much oil on the ground from all of the, all of the oil coming from the salmon. Uh, the next in line would be the chum salmon, or some people call them dog salmon, because as the salmon are getting closer to their spawning grounds, they're you know starting to turn their different colors, they're starting to get their snaggle tooth, and they're not as fit for human consumption. And so a lot of people end up feeding those fish to their dogs and to their dog teams. And we have a lot of traditional uh, dog teams on the river, people who are using them to check their trap lines, go hunting, go to their cabins, do their subsistence activities by dog team. And so they harvest a lot of those chum salmon to feed their dogs. Uh, lower in the river, people are consuming those chum salmon because they're, you know, they're ocean bright. They're really good. And we have two runs. We have a summer chum salmon run and none of those salmon go to Canada. So they're lower in fat content but we have a fall chum salmon run and many of those are headed to Canada. So again, they have, they're, they're migrating over a thousand miles. They have a lot of fat in them and those are more prized for human consumption. It's important to understand here that while these rich and fatty Chinook salmon come in the hundreds of thousands, chum usually come in the millions. For people along the Yukon, not only do both species provide high quality protein, but also enough of that protein to sustain communities through the winter. In some areas of the Yukon, chum salmon, which you might also know as dog salmon or keta salmon, also contribute to a commercial fishery, which employs over 900 people in normal years. The chum salmon, uh, they kind of vary quite a bit from, from year to year, but have historically last 10 years they've been very good they there've been plenty of fish for uh subsistence harvest there's been an excess for commercial so that we can can have a commercial fishery and then there's been plenty for reaching escapement goals this year suddenly the run just disappeared and there were not enough chum salmon for a commercial fishery there were not enough chum salmon for subsistence needs. And now we're seeing with the fall chum salmon, there are not going to be enough that make it to their spawning grounds to meet that escapement goal. Chum salmon returns have been low across the state, meaning that chum that were born in 2016 just didn't do well at some point in their life cycle. With warming ocean and stream temperatures, trawling in the Bering Sea, and other contributing factors taking a toll on salmon, it's hard to point to any one cause of decline but COVID-19 has certainly not made matters any easier. Broadly, COVID has impacted our communities in, in a couple of different ways. One big way is we lost an airline in Alaska. So because of all the travel bans, because uh, people weren't comfortable getting on airplanes, sitting next to other people and flying, we had a, a major airline go bankrupt in Alaska. And that was kind of like a long time coming, 
but COVID-19 was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so we have communities who lost a, a major supplier of goods and uh, services, essentially. And, and that's had a pretty big impact on getting food into communities. And so we saw an uptick of grocery prices. We have, in some communities, people are having a hard time getting enough shipments into uh, the community for to restock their stores. So broadly speaking, it's definitely impacted how goods and services are able to get into our communities. It's impacted uh, this fishing season, how we have a lot of people who are from our villages, but who have moved to Anchorage or Fairbanks because that's where the jobs are. And so we have a lot of people who live in Fairbanks or Anchorage, but they still have parents or they still have family that are out in the villages. And in the summertime, they fly out there and they might spend, you know, several weeks or a month living out in the villages and helping their family harvest salmon. The low salmon runs on top of COVID-19 is, yes, creating this perfect storm where okay, people don't have enough food for human consumption. So now any additional financial resources they have, they're sticking it into, I'm going to buy beef, I'm going to buy chicken, I'm going to find other ways to you know, get protein for my family. So that's using up all of their extra financial resources. And anyone who has a dog team now has nothing left over to take care of their dog team. In other years, they might have been able to have enough food to feed their family, and then they'd take that extra money and they would ship in dog food um, or buy maybe you know salmon parts from somewhere else in the state and, and get those sent in. But people don't have those financial resources this year. And so I've had several dog mushers reach out to me um, in Tanana and Fort Yukon specifically, because that's where most of our traditional dog teams are, and they rely on tens of thousands of chum salmon every year to feed their dog teams. In Tanana alone, they harvest on average 20,000 chum salmon to feed their dog teams. So to have zero chum salmon harvest this year is a huge impact. A lot of, <laughs> it's a lot to replace that many chum salmon. And COVID-19 is, is again making it even worse because now freight prices are also increased and getting on a freight schedule could be a challenge uh, because people are shipping so many other things out to the villages to supplement uh, the low, low salmon run. Now, I want to take a moment here to explain the relationship between dogs and people in Alaska and in the Arctic more broadly. In the North, dogs are more than just pets. In many remote communities, dog teams are still a vital source of transportation. They are more reliable than snowmobiles, or snow machines as we say in Alaska, because they don't depend on imported fuel, and they've been bred to thrive in inclement weather. Dr. Quinn Davidson explained this really nicely in our conversation. Again, this is out in rural, remote Alaska, and we don't have, you know, trails that people are hiking on to go hunting, and this is really rugged terrain, and 
a lot of people are, have switched over to using snow machines to do their subsistence hunting and to, do, to check trap lines and whatnot. But there's still a lot of people who use dog teams because it's uh, more feasible for them. And they're able to go places that snow machines aren't able to go. And so there's, it's part of their culture. They've lived off the land for so long using these dogs. These dogs are descendants of these great teams that helped feed the villages in generations past. And it's part of who they are. And so that's why they keep them. This relationship between the land, humans, and dogs is really important to understand. Now, a small warning to our listeners. This next part of the story contains some difficult material about dog teams, but we encourage you to listen through because this story does have a happy ending. So, yeah, we've got this perfect storm. The, the dog teams, the mushers reached out to me and said, we need help. I mean, we wouldn't normally like plead for, for help. We would try and make it work. We would find other people who could share with us, but this is really bad. We are going to have to start calling our team. It's a pretty dire situation. Um, it's not like people are out there living beyond their means. Right. And the chum salmon run collapsed and this is creating a problem that is, you know, at no fault of the dog mushers, the, the dog teams, there was no way they could have predicted that the chum salmon wouldn't come back this year or that COVID-19 would take all of their financial resources away from them. Uh, so, uh, and these are dog teams that people have spent years building up or maybe a lifetime, lifetime building up, right? They love their dogs like family and there's a lot of financial support out there for people to help with human food, for food security, for people. I was able to use some COVID relief money to purchase salmon for our communities that we will be distributing to them, but that's for human food. We're sending it out to communities to help elders and people most in need. We don't have a financial mechanism for supporting dog teams. Like there's no COVID relief money for dog teams. So I put out this request on social media to see if any large dog food companies would be willing to help us. Just tagged a bunch of them on Twitter and in Facebook and have had a pretty surprising response from it and have had a number of Iditarod mushers who have reached out and said, if there's any way that we can help, let us know. We'll use our social media platforms to, to elevate your message which I think is really cool, right? Because here you have professional dog racing mushers who understand the importance of these traditional dog teams, the, the root, like why the Iditarod was even around or started in the first place is this is how people traditionally used to travel and they want to, I think, honor kind of the roots of their sport and, and help us out in this way. And that's been really, um, really touching to see. So thanks to Dr. Quinn Davidson's efforts and the support of dog food companies like Purina, dog food is on the way to these villages. Of course, the logistical challenge of distributing food across huge areas does still remain, and it's an expensive one. A GoFundMe page has been set up to help support the costs of getting food to those who need it most, and if you're interested in supporting that effort, you can find the link in the description of this episode. One last question that came to mind after hearing this story was, 
How sustainable is this? Is this difficult situation the new norm? We'll leave you with Dr. Quinn Davidson's final thoughts on this matter. Someone asked me in a, I think a news interview, radio interview, like, is this a long-term thing? Like, is this, do people need to start thinking about scaling back their dog teams and rethinking of how they feed them? And, and again, I think that this low chum salmon run is hopefully not going to last very long. And because we have this perfect storm of COVID-19 impacting people, I think this is an anomaly for us. I'm hoping that this is this year, if we can get people through this, hopefully we don't have COVID-19 next summer and it's not impacting people's finances and they would have you know extra, extra money if salmon runs were low again to supplement and buy dog food. But I don't anticipate this is like a long-term thing for people on the river. This is just, We have this perfect storm and we need to figure out how we can help everyone. Thanks for joining us. Social Fishing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the Miopar Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Dennis Zimmerman, Elizabeth MacDonald, and Dr. Stephanie Quinn Davidson. You're listening to Jam Tomorrow by Dr. Turtle, available at the Free Music Archive. See you next time.